We're in a series that we're calling Heroes, and there are lots of heroes in Philly these days, right? They go by the name of Hoskins and Harper, JT, Nola, yes. And tonight, maybe we'll have a few more green heroes, we're not sure. Well, in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at some of our cultural heroes, and here's what we're finding out. Heroes from our world or our culture have extraordinary abilities. They have talents and powers and skills that most of us don't have. And because of that, they're able to accomplish extraordinary things. Interestingly, when you come to the Bible, you don't find heroes with extraordinary skills and abilities. You find ordinary people with faults and flaws. But once they understand and are in touch and live into their weakness, they then are empowered by God and they wind up doing extraordinary things. Now, we've looked at a few of them before. This morning, we're going to come to maybe the biggest hero of the Old Testament. His name is Moses. Now, there's so much material on Moses, we stand no shot of working through it. In fact, you'll need most of the afternoon if you want to read through it. If you want to read about Moses in the Old Testament, you'll read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, like four books, not four chapters or verses, four books. Well, obviously, we don't have time to do that. We're going to read some verses from Hebrews 11. That's the faith chapter. And Moses gets lots of space in Hebrews 11 too. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 11. And I'm going to read verses 23 to 29. And those verses tell us about Moses, the hero who's weak and flawed, but the hero who does extraordinary things as he lives into his weakness and learns how to trust God. So beginning in verse 23 of Hebrews 11, here's what we read. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Moses is synonymous with deliverance. He's the deliverer. He's the redeemer. He's the one who God sends to bring people, rescue them out of Egypt into the promised land. I was thinking about deliverance a little this week. I went back a number of years ago to when my youngest daughter, Megan, and I were at Sandy Cove. Uh, She was still young and vulnerable and kind of impressionistic then. So I was still trying to show her I was cool. So we went down to the dock one afternoon, and I rented a speedboat. Now, I'm not very good with mechanical things. We rented, actually, it was kind of like a rubber raft, but had a hard shell on the inside. But you could really make hairpin turns. 
So we go out on the bay and we're kind of tooling around. Well, eventually I turned a little too quickly and the wake washed over the boat. We didn't sink, the weight washed over, but the engine died. So I kind of go back and it won't start, won't start. I figure, well, we'll just let the water dry in there. Well, as we're sitting in the boat, the tide's going out. We're kind of in the upper northeast part of the Chesapeake here, tide's going out. And as we start drifting out toward the Atlantic Ocean and Paris, as we're kind of making our way, Megan says, Dad, we're going the wrong way. Uh, I looked over, and the shore of the coast wasn't that far away. She may not have made it, but I could have made it, so I wasn't feeling too bad. And as we're drifting, about an hour and a half later, we're kind of drifting out, lots of tears and crying. Eventually, she dried my tears, and we're going to make it back. And then I discovered on the key ring to the boat, there's a whistle. I mean, boat people think of everything, right? So I start blowing the whistle. There are other boats around. Well, other people hear the whistle. They wave to us. The one woman as they're riding by, she blew us a kiss. And we're still drifting out. Well, eventually, after lots of whistling and lots of complaining, some nice captain came by, threw us a line, and towed us back to dock. After we got to the dock, I climbed up, and the guy looked kind of surprised, and he said, why didn't you pull out the choke and start the engine? I said, well, like, what's a choke in an engine? Well, anyway, the point of that story is not that I'm an idiot, but the point of the story is when you're dead in the water, you need a gracious captain to get you home. That's what deliverance is. Deliverance is not you're able to fix yourself through self-help and trying harder, you can get back. No, deliverance means you're in a hopeless, helpless situation and you need a gracious hero to get you back home. Moses becomes the ultimate Old Testament signpost to Jesus, the ultimate gracious hero who gets us home. Now again, there's lots of stuff about Moses. We're gonna look at three themes this morning. And the first of the themes is my way or your way. Now, let me just explain how we get to the point where the Egyptians have enslaved the Israelites because in Genesis, the last time we looked at Genesis, Joseph was kind of like prime minister. How in the world did the tables get turned? Here's how the story goes. They moved from promise to slavery. Years and years before, God promised to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, a great name. You're going to be a great blessing to the world. I'm sending you on a great mission, and I'm going to give you a land, I promise. Well, Abraham eventually goes to the land, never really owns any of it, but he's living there with a small family, and a famine strikes. So what does Abraham have to do? Abraham's descendants have to go down to Egypt to survive. Joseph has now become prime minister. He's kind of doling out supplies. Eventually, Abraham's descendants all moved to Egypt. That's how they get there. And they wind up staying there for over 400 years. I mean, it's only been, what, 48 years since the Flyers won the cup? I imagine 400-some years, they're enslaved in Egypt. Now, how did they get to slavery? Well, the Egyptians discover these Israelites are multiplying like rabbits. And if they continue to expand the population, they're going to be more Israelites than Egyptians. And if they don't like us, they'll overthrow our country and take over. So the Egyptians set out on a plan. Genocide. We'll kill the Hebrews. We'll kill the Jews. 
And here was their plan. Whenever a firstborn son comes into the world, we're going to require that that firstborn son be drowned in the Nile. The firstborn kid, the firstborn son had to be executed. Well, Moses' parents, we read in Hebrews, they discover he's a beautiful child. You ever, you ever see parents that don't think their kid's beautiful, right? Even if the kid looks like an alien, right? Oh, he's a beautiful child. Well, anyway, his parents think he's beautiful and wonderful. They don't want to kill him, so they go down and they put him into a basket, kind of push him down the Nile. And through a miraculous set of circumstances, Pharaoh's daughter rescues Moses. And he goes from being, having a death wish over his head to eventually being adopted into the palace. So we got a promise to slavery. We've got death to life. Well, how in the world does he go from prince to peasant? Well, here's a verse that shows you what's going on. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where, um, with the, where his own people were. They're the Jews. He went out to where they were, and he watched them. He watched this person uh, experiencing hard labor, and he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew. So what does he do? He kills the Egyptian. Eventually, word spreads. The word gets out. Moses is afraid. He takes off. He leaves the palace all of the trappings, the awesome resume, everybody waiting on him at his pecking call. He takes off and goes into the desert. And he's in the desert for 40 years. Somehow he must have felt God's call in his life to deliver the people. And here he is put on the shelf. He's got to leave his home, leave his family, both the Jews and the palace. He's got to go. Now he's living in the desert. But when he's in the desert, he kind of gets adopted and he winds up marrying somebody in the desert. And he's now part of their family, and he's a shepherd for 40 years in the desert. That's a long time. But then he moves from shepherd to savior. While he's in the desert, one day he sees a burning bush, but the bush isn't consumed. And God basically says, Moses, I want you to go back and deliver my people. And I'm guessing Moses is thinking, I already tried that once 40 years ago. I tried to, and it didn't work very well. Now you're sending me back. Yes, I'm sending you back. Well, he goes back and he says, well, how's this going to work? What's going on? Here's a verse that tells us about him going back. Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you and bring you into that land I promised. So all of that stuff's going on. Amazing things in Moses' life. He goes back. Why did he need 40 years in the wilderness? What? Well, because all the stuff going on in the outside of Moses' situation was nothing compared to what God was doing on his insides. You see, 40 years before, maybe he sensed God's call to deliver, but he tried to do it. And he tried to do it the way he knew how, and he kind of screws it all up, right? And for 40 years in the desert, Moses has to wrestle with the question, am I going to do this my way, or am I going to do this God's way? Is this going to be my way, or is this going to be God's way? You know, every human being has to come to wrestle with that decision. And here's the decision. Every human being will one day pray one of two prayers. Here's how they go. Not my will, but your will be done. Or, everybody else will pray, not your will, my will be done. But that's not only one prayer at the end. We get to pray one of those two prayers every day, right? 
And in the beginning, Moses was always praying, not your will, my will, not your will, my will. He had life figured out and he was doing it his way. And he had to learn through 40 years in the desert, it's not your will, it's not my will, it's your will. I've been living, it's not your will, it's my will. I need to turn that around. So now I'm living, not my will, but your will be done. As I was reading through that stuff this week and thinking, I was reminded of um, a section from Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. And Paul will be doing a seminar for us, I think in January. You need to avail yourself to that or go and buy the book. But here's how it goes. And I kept thinking about it right at this point. Here's what Paul says. When you read through the scripture, you see an illustration a model, a perspective come up all the time. And it's kind of how farming goes. Here it goes. Here's how it goes. You plant, but before you harvest, okay, all you farmers, if you plant, what do you have to do before you harvest? You have to wait. I hate that, right? You have to plant, and then you wait, and then you wait, and then you harvest. Now, harvest is a lot of work, and planting is a lot of work. The way to, yeah, you got to fertilize and weed and all that. But the real work is done in the planting, and the major work is done in the harvesting. Here's the principle. Pray, wait, work. I don't know about you. I usually reverse that. Something happens in my life, in my situation. I work at it, right? I sit down, I come up with a plan, I figure out where I want to be, how I want to get there, and I begin to organize my thoughts, put my energy together, come up with a plan, and I work that plan. And I work, and eventually, when things go south and nothing's working, I may pray if nothing's working. See how we reverse it? Pray, and you wait, and you work. Moses reversed that, didn't he? So in the beginning, he works at it, he goes out, he sees the Egyptian beating on the Hebrew, he killed, he's bringing deliverance. He's trying to free his people. He's doing what he thinks God wants him to do. But there wasn't any prayer involved. In fact, it even says he looked this way and that way, but he didn't look up. He's looking around to see what, he doesn't pray. He doesn't wait. He just jumps in and works. Well, God's given me a couple of opportunities in my life these days where I had a choice these past couple of weeks. Something came up. How am I going to deal with it? And I'm tempted to sit down with a piece of paper, come up with goals, objectives, strategize the plan. And I had to force myself to say, you know what? I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to wait. And it was so hard, I even put a time limit on the waiting, right? And I said, okay, if nothing happens by Wednesday, then Wednesday I'm going to do something. That just shows you how messed up I am, right? Are, are you like that? Rather than pray and wait and work, we just, something happens we don't like, something, something out there we want. We just immediately jump in and work without praying and asking God what he wants, how we need to be following what he wants. Moses didn't pray and wait and then work. He jumped right in and worked. But you know what? You don't thwart God's plan. God sent him to the desert for 40 years to wait. He did the work thing first. God said, okay, now, now I'm going to send you to wait. You wouldn't wait on your own. I'm going to send you to wait. And he waits. You know, when you read the life of Jesus, the one to whom Moses points, what do you see in Jesus? Pray, wait, and work. He authored the pattern, and he follows the pattern. My will or your will? That's a theme in Moses' life. He struggles with that through his whole life, just as we will, right? 
Eventually he learns. Are you learning? Well, the second uh, theme I want to look at in his life is following and wandering. Following and wandering. Did you notice in the Hebrews passage that God leads? God leads them out of Egypt. And he does it in some incredible ways, right? God even says, um, I'm going to lead you just so you know where to turn and when to rest and when to move on. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to lead you during the day. There'll be a pillar of cloud and at night it'll be a pillar of fire. All you have to do is follow the pillar. Remember the old days when if you wanted to get somewhere, you had to look on a map. Remember that? I mean, I like maps, right? I mean, I would like to spread them out on the table. Here's why I like maps. When you look at a map, you see where you are. Oh, here's where I am. Here's where I want to be. And then you pick the best route to get you there. Is that how people get to where they're going today? Heck no. They have no idea. All they know is where they're headed and what Waze tells them to do. That's all they know. I still need to know where I'm at. I still like to know in my mind where the map is. And every once in a while, quite, I don't think this GPS thing knows. I know the better way, and often I'll choose my way, and it'll take me longer to get there. You know what God says? Following a GPS, if God's the GPS, is a whole lot better than following the map. Now, if you think of it this way, the Israelites are in Egypt, right? And if you picture, we should have a map, sorry. You picture the map. Here's all the Israelites had to do. Go east and then north. That's all I had to do, right? You got the big Mediterranean, right? They're in Egypt, south, southern part of the Mediterranean. Just go east until there's no more Mediterranean. Go north to the promised land. That's all they did. East and north. So God delivers miraculously, right? All through the plagues, God leads them out. Eventually they leave. And as they're leaving, following, they're kind of walking. They go east, east, east. All of a sudden, the cloud turns south. It's a directionally challenged cloud, right? They knew how to get to the promised land. And if you just look at a map, it should have taken a few months. We know it took 40 years, but it should have taken four months, a few months. They had a big decision to make. When the cloud goes the wrong way, were they going to follow? Were they going to, well, we know how to get to the promised land. God will meet you there, right? And they'll just keep going. The cloud goes south. Are they going to follow when it doesn't make sense? Are they going to follow when God's leading the wrong way? Are they going to follow when seemingly they're headed toward a desert rather than the promised land? At least around the Mediterranean, there's, you know, there's, you know, some fertile land. Things are green. The desert. How about you? How about me? When God leads to places you don't want to go, you going to follow or are you going to meet him at the destination? We want a map, right? We want to know where we are, where we're headed, and how we think we should get there. God says, no, no, I'm going to lead you like a ways program. I'll tell you when to turn and when not to turn. When God leads in the wrong direction, are you going to follow? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes, right? He comes to be the Savior. All of a sudden, the path is leading to a cross? The path is leading to death? Jesus faithfully follows. Even though, humanly speaking, it sure seems like that detour is going somewhere it shouldn't be going. God often leads into a desert, doesn't he? Here's the truth of it. 
Sorry to tell you if you don't know this. Some of you this morning are in a desert. What's a desert? A desert is a place you don't want to go. A desert is a place you don't want to be. A desert is a place that can't sustain life. A desert can't sustain life for millions of people, hundreds of thousands. A desert can't sustain life. God leads to the desert. You don't want to go. But God does some of his best work in deserts, doesn't he? Moses, 40 years in the desert. The Israelites, 40 years in the desert. Elijah goes to the desert for 40 days. Oh yeah, Jesus goes to the desert for 40 days before he begins his ministry. Yeah, God does some of his best work in the desert. What do you learn in the desert? Well, the one thing you learn in the desert is you learn patience and you learn to trust. You learn patience and you learn to trust. Now, I said deserts are places you can't sustain life, but God sustains their lives in the desert, doesn't he? He sustains their life. Water flows from the rock. God provides water. And God even provides food. He provides, what's the name of the food? Manna, manna. We have a manna verse up here. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need, take an omer for each person you have in your tent. Now, why did I put that verse up there instead of mine? Here's mine. I did a funeral about a week and a half ago. And at the funeral, this guy came up to me and shook my hand. He said, Charles, I'm not sure you know me. My name is Omer. Not Elmer, Omer. My first thought was, who the heck would name their kid Omer, right? And then he said, you're like a preacher. Do you know what an Omer is? I kind of knew, but I'm thinking nobody would name their kid Omer. Omer is a measurement. You know what Omer is? About three pounds. It's weight. About three pounds. Who would name their kid three pounds? Okay, but here's what an omer was, and here's what God said with this provision, right? Desert's going to teach you patience and teach you trust as God provides. The Israelites were told every day, you go out and collect an omer, three pounds of manna, for everybody in your tent. Don't collect four pounds, six pounds, so you don't have to go the next day. Every day you collect an omer. Now, what would happen if they collected, you know what? Like, I'm tired. I'll collect twice as much today, and I won't collect any tomorrow. Yeah, but when they kept the manna, the manna had maggots the next day. And, you know, people would complain about having manna every day. Yeah, manna and maggots is worse, right? Um, so God says, every day, I will provide what you need for that day. If you try to collect a lot more, it'll spoil. Patience and provision. You ever think about that? God led the Israelites to the desert, the place that cannot sustain life. And he feeds them every day for over 14,000 days. He never misses a day. The Israelites wound up with maggots if they tried to collect a lot for the future. We often live collecting for the future, right? And sometimes it feels like, it, like it's full of maggots, right? God will provide each day. So here's what you learn in the desert, what God teaches. You learn a lot about yourself. When you're in the desert, you know you can't sustain life yourself. But you learn about God. 
He can sustain your life. He comes through. And when God leads you and leads me to places that can't sustain life, places that we don't want to go, you learn about yourself. You're weak and you can't do it. You learn about God. He loves you and he's faithful and he provides. And you learn to trust him and you learn to be patient. And those are lessons we sure need to learn, aren't they? One of the commentators I read this week uh, said this. God isn't as concerned with how quickly you're going to get where you're going. He's more concerned with who you're going to be when you get there. That's what God's doing with Israel, right? He's more concerned with who they're going to be when they get to the promised land than he is with just getting them to the promised land as quickly as he can. My way or your way? Wandering or following? Two themes we learn from Moses. But maybe the overarching one we learn from Moses is law and love. My guess is if we were to interview you coming in, kind of, you know, person on the street, we'd say, when I say Moses, what do you think of? If we did word association on the way in, I know many of you would have said, the law, Moses, the lawgiver, Moses, the Ten Commandments, Moses gave us all these rules we have to live. And that's true. Moses is the lawgiver. In fact, in Exodus 20, we find the big 10. All right, here's Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And right after that, here's what he says. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any images. Don't use my name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't steal. All those things. And we almost think, yeah, Moses, he's the lawgiver. And God's saying, don't do these things or else I'm going to get you. But before Moses gives us God's law that teaches us who God is and teaches us how we can live in sync with how God created things, before the law comes love. God doesn't give the Ten Commandments before he delivers them out of Egypt. God doesn't say, now if you start keeping these Ten Commandments and you keep them really well, I'll deliver it. That's not what he says. He delivers them, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. You know, sometimes we think the uh, Ten Commandments are kind of like stupid laws that some states have. I found some of these. You'll like some of these. Here are stupid laws from states. The Ten Commandments are not there, but here are some. These are all real, by the way. In Wyoming, it's illegal to ski while intoxicated. I don't know why you'd want to. Maybe you heard somebody. No, here's a good one from New Mexico. In New Mexico, idiots are ineligible to vote. They can still run for office, but they can't vote, I guess. Here's a good one from Jersey, right? Our sister state. Here we go. In New Jersey, it's illegal to wear a bulletproof vest to commit murder. <laughs> in Idaho, cannibalism is illegal, except in extreme circumstances. And here's a good one. And in Georgia, it's illegal to eat chicken, fried chicken with a fork. I guess we could say chicken wings too, right? The Ten Commandments aren't like that. The Ten Commandments show us God's character, show us who God is, God's holy. And the Ten Commandments show us how to live in sync with how God made things. But never forget, the commandments came after the deliverance. 
God delivers them from Egypt and then gives them the commandments. So here's the principle. We've said this numerous times. We need to have this burned into our brain. The gospel is not believe, obey, save. That's not the gospel. The gospel is believe, saved, obey. You need all three, but when you get the order of the other two out, out of whack, you no longer have the gospel. You've got a self-help works kind of deal that will crush you. Believe, saved, obey. Well, that brings up a question. If deliverance comes before the law, so you got this law-love thing going, and Moses involved them both, what's the deliverance based on then? Well, you can go back and read those chapters. And in Exodus chapter 12, you find the story of Passover. And here's what the deliverance is based on. God comes to Moses and he says, I've had enough. I am about to uh, bring payday to reign on Egypt. The firstborn, that, that's the future. It's not, not just a kid. The firstborn son, the future of every family is now called to account. But if you trust me and you tell the Israelites, I am willing to take the death of a substitute instead of the death of the firstborn. So if you were to go out and take an unblemished lamb, and you were to sacrifice that lamb, and you were to take the blood from the lamb and paint the door frames of your house, then the angel of death will pass over. And so the moral of that story is, there was a death in every house in Egypt that night. Either the death of the firstborn, or the death of the substitute lamb. Moses is the giver of love, isn't he? I mean, that's a message of grace. Along with the law that shows how we fall short and how weak and sinful we are, comes the sacrificial system that shows through God's grace how we can be restored, how we can be victorious, how we can be connected to God and accepted by him forever. So where is that story of love and law headed? Well, as you turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and you read John's Gospel, one day Jesus shows up on the banks of the Jordan. And John the Baptist points to Jesus and he says, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Payday's coming. You'll pay or God's graciously provided substitute has already paid. Moses is a hero in the Bible. But he's mostly heroic, not because he's super different than us, not because he's perfect, not because he's whole. He's flawed, he has faults, he's finite, he's weak. He gets in touch with that. And he says, not my will, but your will. And he begins to follow rather than wander. And he begins to live out the connection between law and love. And what makes Moses an awesome hero is that he points like a laser to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That's the same message we have. 
So I sure hope this morning as you think about deliverance that you're in touch with your weakness and your frailty. And maybe you look at yourself and say, well, I'm not a hero at all. You're ordinary. But in your ordinariness, you can admit your weakness and you can do the heroic thing by pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God, following him rather than wandering aimlessly. And as you do, helping other people connect and be impacted by him. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for how the scripture just holds together. And even though we meet lots of characters with different traits and different strengths and lots of weaknesses, maybe flaws we have and faults that we have, and maybe some that are new to us, but Lord, it all hangs together because the heroes in this book are made heroes because they're in touch with their weakness, but they find acceptance and strength in Jesus, the one to whom they all point. Lord, I pray that you would make us heroes in that way, not trying to pretend that we don't have weakness and living pretending that they're not real. Help us to live into them. In the midst of that, to point to Jesus, the ultimate hero, not wandering aimlessly, but following closely, pointing to him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Help us to do that this week, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.